0: Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. A judge has ruled that Bill 5 should be tossed out. This was the bill uh, that uh, the Ford government tried to introduce or introduced in order to shrink the size of Toronto Council. The Ontario government issued uh, a statement saying they were going to uh, issue the notwithstanding clause, if needed, for all of this. Let's bring in Travis Danrosh, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, Global News, and with us now, Travis, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey Scott. Happy to be here. So, what's the buzz down at Queen's Park right now? What's the feeling, what's the chatter with all that's been going on?
1: Oh, you know, not too much happening at Queen's Park. (laughs) (laughs) No, it has been uh, fast and furious, the developments when it comes to this story. And today, um, it is a bit quiet. Um, Today's a little bit of a calm after the storm. Uh, But tomorrow, of course, there is going to be that vote. Uh, on uh, what was a bombshell announcement by the premier yesterday saying that he plans to invoke the notwithstanding clause. Uh, Let me just give you a sense of of the day yesterday. Uh, This decision by the judge came out at about 8 o'clock in the morning or so. Um, Then we were told that there was going to be a news conference by the premier. I got on the phone with my sources um, who told me that they were going to to fight this, that the premier was not going to take the sitting down. Um, and uh, that an appeal might uh, be happening. Then I was told probably around 10 o'clock in the morning, 11 o'clock in the morning, that the Premier was convening a conference call of Cabinet to discuss using the notwithstanding clause. Uh, I didn't take that call too seriously because, you know, I thought, well, there's no way he's going to do that. Um, And then, of course, uh, that is
0: what happened. The rest of the PCs seem relatively quiet on this. Are you surprised? Will anybody abstain from this vote?
1: Well, and, and, you know, the premier was asked directly yesterday whether or not this is going to be a whipped vote or a free vote. He says that caucus is with him 1,000% uh, and that this is going to be a free vote. From what I get in terms of the, uh, what I was told about that conference call was that it took a lot of convincing and that there was a lot of whipping going on on that conference call uh, I, I think that there are some members of caucus who, who likely had reservations about this. This is an extreme way to go. Um, but uh, I believe that you will probably see tomorrow everyone uh, in PC caucus vote in, uh, in, in unison uh, and back the premier on this.
0: Uh, obviously, lots of chatter, lots of, uh, of people disgruntled with all of this. Are there any supporters? Is there anybody defending the premier here? There,
1: there's certainly, uh, uh, you know, his, his base... Uh, I would say really loves this. They say that you know he he was he was voted in on a strong mandate to reduce the size of government, and that is exactly what he is going to do. So people on the streets that you talk to are really mixed on this decision. Some people uh, in downtown Toronto say that uh, it, it's absolutely absurd, but you go out to some of the suburbs, Etobicoke, Scarborough, uh, and people are fully behind him. They say that you know he is doing what he said he was going to do, and, and the Premier said yesterday, I've, I've got tools in my toolbox as well. The courts have their tools. Council and candidates have their tools. Well, I'm the premier, and I've got mine, and I'm going to use every tool in that toolbox.
0: Do do citizens care if he's reducing the size of government? I mean, most of us have felt cutbacks. Most of us have, have been pinched in some way. Uh, I, I can't imagine too many people being upset that we're reducing the number of politicians. Is it resonating that way?
1: Well, and, and I think I think that it is. And, 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 you know, one of the questions that I put to him... Yesterday, as I said, Mr. Premier, is this a personal grudge? Everyone knows that you have a long history uh, and and your, and your brother, the late mayor Rob Ford, had a long history battling it out in council. Um, and he said, this has absolutely nothing to do with uh, any kind of grudge. I have no grudge. This has to do with making government run more efficiently. and that message certainly has resonated with a lot of people uh, in this city and also across uh, the province as well. and uh, you know, uh, it, it is a tool that he has to use. You know, uh, disagree with it or not. Uh, I, I mean, he he can use this. I was just chatting with uh, John Mascaren, who's a municipal law expert, uh, and he says that there's not much that really can be done to, to to fight this. I mean, it could be taken to the feds, but it, it is very unlikely that they would they would try to try to, uh, you know, change his decision on this.
0: Why is, or why did the Premier say he was doing this? Did he allude why this was a priority for him? I mean, you know, I mean, we certainly know uh, most city councils have an element of dysfunction in them. Toronto certainly no stranger to that. Will this make government city council more efficient? Will it save dollars? What's his reasoning for doing this?
1: Well, he says that it will save $25 million. Uh, We haven't really gotten the specifics on those numbers, uh, he says that is a reduction in salaries for counselors, etc. But but he was asked on Global News Radio here in Toronto uh, yesterday uh, about why he is doing this and why he's doing it just in Toronto and not looking at other municipalities. He says he's getting a lot of calls about Ottawa. He might be looking at Ottawa, but he's focused on Toronto right now because really Toronto is the the engine. Uh, uh, that drives the uh, Ontario economy. and So that's why he wants to get City Hall functioning. He says it's completely dysfunctional right now, that everyone goes around in circles, and he wants to make sure that it is running more efficiently and he is saving money.
0: Are there any more politicians in agreement with this other than, the, uh, other than one's end of the PC umbrella?
1: Not that I have talked to. I mean, yesterday uh, Andrew Horvath had a news conference, which was on, uh, you know, it, it shifted as well because they were waiting for reaction from the Premier. He initially had that news conference scheduled for noon, and then I guess his conference call with Cabinet went long and then it ended up happening at 2 o'clock. She had her news conference right after. She said that he is acting like the king. Of Ontario, that he's using a bat to, you know, swat a mosquito, uh, and, and so you know we heard similar messages from the Green Party and from the Liberal Party as well. So in terms of other politicians that are on side with this, that are not in the PC Party, not a not a ton, but there are some councillors, uh, you know, Michael Ford, his nephew, uh, down at City Hall, that, that are that are on side with this. Giorgio O'Manoliti is another one. Uh, who, who say that they completely support this, and they, they back his decision because they want to see Council run more efficiently.
0: Will this make Toronto Council move more efficiently? Uh, many are saying that, you know, now there isn't representation. Others say there's so much reputation, everything gets lost in the sauce, and nothing ever gets done. Um, will this make it, do you think, or have you had any heard any others say that this will make and definitely make uh, Council more efficient?
1: Well, there's two schools of thought on that, right? I mean, I I, I covered City Hall for a very long time, and, and, you know, it is the case sometimes that you're there and debate just goes on forever because there are so many opinions um, and and everyone wants to have their say when it comes to things. So so some people would say, okay, if you have less debate and and you have, uh, you know, uh, a a more, uh, you know, uh, a smaller council, you'll be able to get decisions through quicker. There's another school of thought, thought that says, well you know you're not going to have proportional representation for the city of toronto as big as it is you you have to have 47 councilors or even 30 something to to really represent this the the city and the people so i mean that that is a point of debate um I'm not going to weigh in on that, other than to say that there's two schools of thought on that. Uh,
0: where is this going from here? What happens next? What's the process now? Well, the process
1: now is that tomorrow the the house will be recalled. It was originally supposed to sit on the 24th. Now, there everyone's going to have to come back from their writings and and be here tomorrow for this debate uh, and and vote. Um, and then what happens next? Well, I've likely. will, uh, this will pass, uh, and and then, you know, council will be reduced to 25 for this election. And you have to understand, we're only a couple weeks out from October 22nd. So the clerk's office is kind of, you know, going crazy at this point, because first it's, uh, you know, 47, then it's 25, then it might be 47 again, now it's 25. So uh, they just want an answer as to to what happens. So at least If this passes, they will have an answer, okay, we're running with 25 uh, wards. But the other question here is, could the Premier use the Notwithstanding Clause Section 33 of the Charter once again uh, when it comes to other issues? And there are other issues on the table. EPFO, the Elementary Teachers Federation of Mm -hmm. Ontario, uh, has launched a, a legal battle with the province now over the sex ed curriculum saying that uh, you know they have infringed on teachers' rights when uh, they have rolled back the curriculum to the 1998, and there's a legal challenge now. Could the premier uh, invoke the notwithstanding clause on that? Well, he potentially could, and yesterday he said that uh, he's not ruling it out using it once again. Uh,
0: you know, you think about uh, whether this is a good idea or not. I, I, it appears that that where the confusion and the distress is is that this is being implemented so quickly, and obviously w- with the municipal election coming in October, uh, how, how logistically, how can they make this happen? How can they can they logistically shrink this from 47 to 25 and then have everybody know what the heck is going on before the election actually rolls around?
1: Uh, my sources on that say if the clerk's office says, listen, uh, we, we, we can't redraw the map here, we can't, uh, you know, logistically do this, that Elections Ontario would, would step in. Um, that is what I am hearing. There's not uh, official confirmation on that, but but certainly, uh, you know, if the if the premier is dead set on having 25 wards, uh, uh, I think that the province will move to make the election happen one way or another. If the city can't,
0: what will that create confusion as far as voters and even people who thought they were going to run but now can't run? Or well, I
1: think there's just confusion across the board you yeah. know, until we get a until we get an answer. Right? I mean. You know, there there are councillors that were uh, pitted against one another, running for the same ward. Than yesterday morning, they thought, okay, everything is back to, to, to the way it was. Um, now, once again, it, it looks as though it is going to be twenty five. So, I think everyone's confused. Everyone is is waiting for a definitive answer on this, and we might get that possibly tomorrow.
0: Could it be? Uh, you, you talked about if this if this doesn't look like it can be done, elections Ontario will step in. Uh, could it be that just that logistically there just isn't enough time to do this between now and an election?
1: It could be, and that's what the clerk's office would say. And, I mean, that that, is, that was, you know, uh, one of the things that uh, w- was brought up in council uh, when this initially, this whole sto- story started uh, when the premier said that he wanted to, to reduce uh, the size of council from 47 to 25 during the summer. Uh, the clerk's office said, OK, well, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, I mean, they could come back and say, listen, we can't run it. But uh, again, like my sources tell me that uh, the province would step in at that point. But really, there's a big question mark on that as well. So uh, developments at Queen's Park are very fast and furious. Tomorrow is another day, calm here today, but tomorrow is another day where everything could change or we could have a final answer and it will be 25
0: uh, any idea, Travis, where uh, Election Ontario, Elections Ontario is on this? I mean, what would they be asked to do? What would no, their we haven't be reached in? out
1: to them a, 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 as yet. And, and just I want to underline the point that we, this is sources telling me that Elections Ontario would step in. We don't have official confirmation uh, from that from the province. Uh, but uh, but we haven't had heard official word. I think that there would need to be uh, a, a request made uh, and I'm not sure if that's from the city or or the the premier would just say, okay, well, we're going to have elections. Ontario step in and and, and and handle this if the city can't. Um, so that there's another question mark as well. I mean, we're we're kind of in uncharted territory. This this hasn't really been done before, right before an election, right? October 22nd is the date, and there are so many questions that still remain unanswered. And, and also, I should point out, also. Uh, that, uh, that the Bronx is filing an appeal as well, um, in addition to saying that they're, not go- they're going to use the notwithstanding clause. So that is uh, another legal battle that they're going to have to fight.
0: Uh, many are, are, are reacting to this, saying it's, it's like taking a jackhammer to attack. That being said, and I'm probably asking you to editorialize here, Travis, which I know you guys don't want to do, but uh, has politics become so stagnant that this is the only way to take a jackhammer to it like this? Doug Ford is not a typical
1: politician. You saw that when he was at City Hall. The Ford family in general, they they don't govern as as typical politicians. And, And so I think he is bringing that style to Queen's Park, and it's ruffling a lot of feathers, but it's also making a lot of people happy. Because, you know, if you look at what has happened through the course of the summer, certainly... Uh, you know, there are, there, there's been a lot of movement on a number of files. Typically, the summer is very slow. Not a lot happens in provincial politics mm. uh, during the summer. He recalled the House for a summer session. Uh, the head of Hydro One is out. They're repealing uh, uh, sex ed. They're consulting on uh, the uh, safe injection site. So there's a number of, of, of things that he is doing that are really um, resonating with his base, but also frustrating a lot of people.
0: Uh, certainly not a typical day in Queens Park, is it?
1: No, you know, <laughs> I just started at Global uh, about a, a week ago, and it has been, you know, one thing after another. And the fall session has not even started. That's happening on the the twenty fourth. So I am uh, strapping myself in for a fun ride because uh, that's what it seems to be so far, and I'm. I'm guessing that that is what it's going to continue to be uh, while Doug Ford is the Premier of the province.
0: Travis Stanraz has been with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, new addition to Global News. Travis, welcome aboard. Thanks so much. And, of course, make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. Thanks so much, Travis. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Christia Freeland and her team are are resuming uh, talks uh, with uh, foreign NAFTA in the United States. Uh, Let's bring in uh, Kurt Hubner, who is with the Institute of European Studies, Department of Political Studies, University of British Columbia, and with us now. Kurt, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon, Scott. Uh, so, a couple of weeks ago, Kurt, uh, there was a deal done with Mexico and the United States. It, it seemed at that time as if Canada had been left out of the loop. Uh, then there was uh, uh, some aggressive talk from from uh, President Trump saying if Canada wants in, they can join this uh this discussion and and sign this deal if not that's up to them uh and and was hoping and it seemed like there was a rush on to get the deal by the following friday that was over a week ago now so where are we and is this is this slowing down
2: yeah one lesson is we definitely don't have to take those deadlines too seriously at least not not those ones who are stated by president trump uh, who obviously wants to make a lot of pressure on Canada, how he did on Mexico uh, before. In Mexico's case, he was uh, pretty successful. I guess so Mexico made a lot of concessions. Uh, this is much more difficult with Canada. Also, with, we, are, we are in a different kind of situation. Still, uh, it needs to be a deal needs to be done uh, at some point in time. I'm pretty sure about that, uh, because we don't want to come into a situation where there's no deal on the table. On the other hand side... Uh, uh, uh justin trudeau made also pretty clear that he's not willing to sign any deal that is not in the interest of canada so they are playing uh, trump and uh, trudeau now on both sides uh, the one putting pressure the other one saying you know we are not in such a kind of hurry and uh, now Chrystia freeland came back a bit earlier than expected today meeting uh, at least in the brief meeting with lighthizer the trade char of the uh, u.s uh, administration And either this means there is something happened over the weekend because those technical teams are still meeting, or there's another impasse, and now it needs those kind of uh, leading figures uh, to move along and to overcome those kind of hurdles. It's not really clear because nobody was expressing it what this will be all about. But uh, definitely, uh, uh, we are moving uh, very slowly, but we are moving forward. There are still issues on the table, and I guess they
0: need to be tackled one by one. Does this... Does this get easier or more difficult the longer it drags on? It's really difficult
2: to say. You know, there's the one thing, is those negotiations. At the other side, we have to be aware, President Trump, besides all this kind of loud speaking, the, the, the tweets he's sending out and all those kind of things, he, at this moment, it looks like he does not have a majority in the Congress, but it needs the Congress to move all those kind of things along, because he has only a mandate to negotiate a NAFTA deal means between Canada, the US, and Mexico, the three of them. Now he has a kind of—it's uh, not really a deal; he has an agreement with Mexico, whether he can pass it—a kind of uh, a bilateral agreement. That's not really clear because a lot of uh, uh, politicians, even of his own party, are making the case that they are not willing to support something where Canada is included. This gives Canada a lot of uh, leeway and some support. uh, We we don't have to bow uh, under kind of pressure of President Trump. So that's the kind of situation. It's very difficult to say. It's a very kind of uh, intransparent uh, game that is being played. uh, And the Trump administration is, so to say, not really commenting on the Congress part. Obviously, I guess there's also pressure on on those kind of guys. But uh, it's not really clear whether there is we are in a hurry or there's still time. Because, um, as you mentioned in your introduction, the deadline already has been moved uh, quite often. You know, we were supposed to have a deal end of last year, we can This was how it all started out. So we're moving with a kind of postponement and with all kind of moving deadlines. That's a reality we are in.
0: So your thoughts on a timeline when this keeps moving?
2: Yeah, my, the, the one thing is that, uh, as it turns out, uh, the Mexican government—that's one critical player on all this. Right. They are eager to have a deal pretty soon. They are—they are, uh, are just uh, telling and uh, informing the public that besides this kind of agreement in principle they have in place, they also have a side agreement uh, where the U.S. Uh, is sort of in guaranteeing that Mexico, for all those, particularly with the car industry, all those cars that are not fulfilling the main agreement. Right. Where there would be tax-free, tariff-free, uh, that they only would have to pay a tariff of 2.5%. So this is a c- pretty comfortable situation for Mexico. It turns out the concessions is very big because even then, you know, if they don't fulfill all those other kind of uh, parts of the deal, uh, the, the, the local content part, the wage uh, element, and all those kind of items that are in the main agreement, the Mexican cars only still have to pay 2.5 percent tariff when they enter the U.S. That's something companies can easily deal with. You know, that's an easy kind of thing. It's not really a punishment. So this also reflects a bit that Trump uh, agreement, so to say, the Trump success, if you put it this way, is by far not as large with the site agreement as they were presenting it. Again, this gives uh, Canada also the kind of hope. But it looks like. President Trump, at least in his wording, is saying, you know, we could, Canada would have to pay a tariff, an extra tariff, if they don't come on board mm-hmm. of 25%. So there are those threats out. Whether he can really materialize them, that's, uh, I would put a huge question mark behind it, because he would shoot in his own foot, because uh, a 25% tariff on Assemble cars in Canada. This would have huge negative uh, implications, also for the U.S. for the automotive sector. So uh, it's a lot of threats, and so there it means another side. There's room for compromises, but it's not much about only the automotive. It's the three things: dairy, supply management. Right. It's uh, Chapter 19: how to deal with uh, disputes, and it's uh, the the oh, safeguarding the cultural industry. Those are the three. I think so, sticking points on the table. And uh, it's difficult for for Trudeau to move along those kind of things. We need, there's no way that, for example, when it comes to disputes about whether particular kind of uh, new regulations laws are good or not good, that, a US court should make a decision about this. We need a kind of independent court, maybe another one that is in place in chapter nineteen. Maybe they can use something like it has been introduced with CETA with a comprehensive economic trade agreement where a total new institution has been created. So there's there's there are there are innovations they can make use of, but obviously the Trump administration would like to not to get interference from outside. And each court would bring interference in their eyes from outside. So one thing the dairy and how can you make a lot of concessions when uh, elections in Quebec are coming up? Right. So, you know, there are all those kind of things on the table that may, you may think about how to overcome them, but in practice, it's not so easy.
0: Which one of these is Canada most likely to make a compromise on? Uh, I'm reading multiple sources say the Americans are not satisfied with the compromises that Canada has proposed. What, what are they most likely to loosen the belt on?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would, I would uh, suggest uh, this would be my thinking, and maybe it is also kind of fresh now in, in the uh, with uh, Christian Freeman, the freelance uh, department. Maybe they are making some more concessions on the side of the dairy industry. You know, and it's a, it's something that needs to be reformed in any case doesn 't mean supply management will go away i don 't think so this is something we we'll go right. see, but there may be higher quotas, there may be a bit better access for uh, let us say to milk and some other products, those kind of things and you know this could be easily compensated uh, like we did with uh, cedar, uh, paying dairy farmers the kind of compensation for the larger access of uh, U.S. Uh, farmers to Canadian markets, this may be something that is in the making, I guess. You know, this is the kind of compromise uh, I would see. Definitely not when it comes to, uh, uh, to the dispute mechanism. I wouldn't see that uh, this will be totally off. That's the kind of the request on the side of the U.S., something that Canada can't afford, you know, you can't allow. In a kind of system in any way that is turning very authoritarian in the U.S. with all the kind of changes in the uh, critical sector. Why is that, the U.S.
0: Uh, so? Why is the U.S. so stuck on 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 on, on uh, Chapter Nineteen and all of that? Because th- this seems like it would protect everyone in this.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems to be that uh, Trump, uh, the Trump administration, uh, wants a. a kind of an opportunity to what they're already on the way to deregulate uh, a a lot of their uh, economic sectors on the one side, and number two, to have the freedom to introduce American first policies. Now, they would obviously uh, contradict the spirit, so to say, of any kind of NAFTA agreement, and this is, so to say, the way where Canada, as well as in the past, Mexico, they could say, "Okay, we need a kind of uh, there's a dispute, there are different views. We need a kind of independent court, something that is currently in place, uh, in order to make uh, a decision whether those kind of regulations, new laws, are contradicting, undermining the spirit of the agreement or not." And Trump wants a situation where his own U.S. courts, and then you would go to all those kind of levels where they would have to make this decision, no longer any independent court. You know, that's the kind of idea. Everything should be in the hands of the United States of America, rather than sharing, uh, in this case, decision-making or even law making, And I think so. this is a very important general principle question. Whether in a trade agreement, this would mean the world candidate would pass along the decision-making power to one member of an agreement, rather than sharing it. Right. And saying so, so this is something we don't want to have. It's also not in a very democratic uh, way in an agreement between three partners. So it tells also there's not a lot of trust, so to say, and all this goes back that the U.S. on average, so to say, has lost more in those kind of disputes than the other two members of NAFTA. I
1: hmm. think so.
2: This is something that they, they don't like or just and restoration doesn't like very much, and therefore. They're fighting to get it rid of this whole kind of thing. But Canada should not give it up.
0: How long will this drag on before Trump brings up auto tariffs again and threatens, as the, and threatens the auto industry? This can
2: happen every, every minute, as we know. I don't know about the mood of President Trump, the more scandals that are being uncovered, the harsher, so to say, his efforts to circumvent those kind of things and to put pressure on other actors. And to Canada is a good, nice victim for all that. So he may treat any moment that he will introduce those kind of terrorists. But again, having said that, the question is, I mean, you know, how irrational can the president act? Because if he would really introduce those 25% uh, uh, auto terrorists uh, on the Canadian automotive industry, this would make cars much more expensive for U.S. consumers, you know, and whether this is something he really would uh, see as a, like, as a preferable outcome, is at least questionable. So I think so. Maybe we shouldn't make those things too, too. we shouldn't take them too seriously. And I think that the Canadian uh, negotiation team uh, demonstrated over the last couple of years that it don't bow easily uh, when pressure is coming up.
0: Uh, has it got to the point where negotiators are exhausted with this, that, they, that they've, they've, they've hammered out? It's hard to believe that they've been negotiating for so long and haven't got to a deal. What more can be ground down? Is, is it, does, Do these discussions get to an, a point where there's uh, exha- exhaustion and fatigue sets in and nothing seems to advance?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's for sure that's happening on the other side uh, uh, one of the uh, chief negotiators, then really on ground, Stephen Berhail. He has a lot of experience. He was very instrumental when it comes to EU uh, negotiations. They are used to those kind of things. You know, they are sitting there for many hours. They are it's a kind of uh, a particular kind of skill, and there's the whole team. So sure, they are exhausted. They negotiate over the whole weekend, and so on. But then also they know what's uh, you know it's uh, important to keep up and to deal with all those little details. you know, They don't talk about the big lines or what we're doing currently or the kind of big lines that are being discussed with Lighthizer and Freeland. They are in the nitty-gritty, there are all those kind of details. And there's a lot to discuss you know, and then to, to find out there are legal scholars, there are trade experts, and to, they deal with it. They may not be happy. They may think about, uh, I can do different things on a long weekend or so, but that's their job.
0: There was pressure here, obviously, to get this all resolved uh, prior to uh, 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 the the Mexican, not so much the Mexican election, but the Mexican transition of of power. Is there still Mm -hmm. a chance of that? Is that still a soft deadline here? There there was chatter of 30 days mm -hmm. out.
2: Exactly. The transition is happening uh, early December, I think even December 1st or so, so it's not a a lot of time, and the, the outgoing government uh would like to finish up all those kind of things and the incoming government would be somehow happy. They they may not like the deal because they're more kind of uh more Mexico first and a different kind of line, but they may be happy if this whole part uh, file would be off the table because then then they can say you know all the kind of stuff that has been negotiated is the new agreement. That's the policy, the outcome of the past government is on ours. So there is a, this kind of pressure from, from, from this side. But having said that, again, the question is, you know, can Trump and his, uh, uh, really get a bilateral deal to the U.S. and Mexico through Congress? You know, I would put a large question mark behind it. Hmm. So that's really something, you know, where uh, we should defer those deadlines, all those kind of things. We should take them too seriously because there are all those other problems he needs the trump administration needs to solve in order to do all those kind of things so uh, still the preferable and the the com- from a congress perspective the preferable outcome should be a redone nafta between the three of them and that's where everybody's waiting for whether there's the kind of deadline that the main deadline may be the november elections in the u.s right good but point this may change the whole game
0: Kurt Hubner has been with us, your Institute of European Studies, Department of Political Science, University of British Columbia. Kurt, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks so much, Scott. Bye now. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio Network, of course, heard every weekend, every Sunday night here on uh, CHML. IndyCar driver who was injured at Pocono Raceway last month has several uh, suffered several injuries. Uh, we talked about the accident that Robert Wickens had uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, although the family last week revealed how serious the injuries were, uh, everything from spinal fracture, fractured neck, uh, tibia, fibula, fractured right arm, and uh, the family a little upset that... Uh, I guess uh, the racing world hasn't done more to uh, tell us the condition of Robert Wickens. Let's bring in Eric Thomas now, Raceline Radio Network. He's here. Eric, thanks for the time, much appreciated. Anytime, Scott, buddy. Uh, first of all, what can you tell us about the condition of Robert Wickens? What do you know?
3: Um, basically, what the family has, you know, listened to your to your roll up, and you, and I think you're 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 partly partly accurate in this. Uh, I'm not even going to talk about what my beef is with the whole information release system that indycar has understanding bottom line is that the series cannot release what the family won't let them release or what the family doesn't let them release in other words they can only tell the media and the general public at large through us you and i what the family releases to them Mm -hmm. so the family decides that they're not going to tell you the full extent of his injuries or my main beef, and I'm going to sneak it in here, is that it took them too darn long to tell us that he was even still alive. It took them an hour after the crash, with everybody watching on TV, at the track and around the world, it took them over an hour to tell us that he was alive. And that, to me, is a deficiency that they need to fix. Hmm. That the family decided that they were going to hold everything close to the vest, which kind of puzzles me in, in, in some respects. People saying, no, no, it's a private matter. No, it's not a private matter because robert wickens through his own decision is a public entertainer is a public figure is a public athlete who performs in the public domain and when something happens to him on stage I think it behooves the series in concert with the family to release the information that we need in a timely fashion. And in a crash this severe, we didn't know, didn't need to know about, you know, possible spinal cord injury, broken back, broken neck, broken legs, broken feet, broken ribs, bruised lung. We didn't need to know that right away. We just needed to know, because of the severity of the crash visually, if the young man was still on this earth. Mm. And it took him too long to do that. Subsequently, the family has released more details, and you you rhymed it off. The one surprise that's in there is that he has a, a broken neck, a fractured neck. Yeah. You know, which is weird because, man, I tell you, when that normally happens, the the uh, the victim is normally no longer here, which is not the case, which is good. All they needed to tell us was, yeah, he's alive. He's you know he's got he's got some injuries to look at. Going to airlift him hospital, but he he's alive. It took an hour of us holding our breath. For the series to finally release that, but the latest that you have is let's back up a page or two. They have transferred him. He is stable enough, and I think this is a positive. When you've got spinal injuries and a broken neck, if he's stable enough to put on an airplane and move him from the Lehigh Hospital near Pocono to Methodist Hospital in Indianapolis, which has the finest thoracic uh, trauma center probably in the world, with Dr. Terry Trammell that he's now recovering there, he's going to be uh, moved to um, a recovery center, a rehabilitation center very, very soon. The one thing we need to find out, the fractures he can recover from, the bruised lung he's already recovered from, I believe, the one thing we need to know is if there is indeed some injury to his spinal cord, Mm -hmm. it may take a few more weeks, maybe even another month or so, before we know the full extent of that. So that's the latest information that we have on Wiccans, and i've had some rather interesting repartee with raceline radio listeners here in chml on whether or not we need to know all the details whether or not we got them in a timely fashion and it's been good it's been good intelligent dialogue but when the guy's on stage and and in the public domain is it's it's no different than a, a, a movie actor or a stage actor or even a politician You know, if somebody falls downstairs and hurts himself, you want to know what those injuries are because he's in the public domain. I understand, you know, the family wanting to protect the privacy, and and they said at the bottom of the latest release, please respect our our request for privacy, and I do respect that, and I'm not trying to, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, encroach on, on what they're doing there. I just think that the series in concert with families need to come up with a better way of releasing The the ultimate piece of information everybody was waiting for, and that was the fact that he was still alive.
0: It appeared that uh, the family was upset that the series was making this look like it wasn't as severe as it really was. Uh,
3: Well, I don't know whether there's a lot of credence in that. What... What what that may be rooted in is the fact that, and we had him on. We had him on the show shortly um, after uh, the telecast in, in the crash of Pocono was Paul Tracy. Of course, does the commentary along with Townsend Bell yeah. on NBC Sports. While we were waiting, um, you know, for uh, some information, Paul through his channels, and he's closer to it than you and I are, or anybody out there complaining is, you know, called called the team and got the lowdown. That, that they said, so look. As I just said, we don't need all the details about the injuries. Is he alive? Is he still with us? And he said, "Yeah, he is." Yeah. So he released that. It was released on social media, and 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 he, the person who did that, is you know caught hell from the series, caught hell from the family. Uh, I, I don't think anyone out there really brushed it aside that he's okay. The, yeah. the one thing we needed to know, that's the most important thing, he survived the crash, mm. and he did. And all the second guessing about the fence and the poles and the you know and the cables through the fence and did the fence do its job and is there a better way to protect drivers did the tub the chassis where he's sitting in protect him yet did it did his job because he survived it you know at this point you want him to come back and race a car but the main thing is is that the young man is still here and that's the main part in this whole argument is that they needed i believe other people disagree with me and that's fine but for me who's been doing this Just about, you know, 90% of my professional career, I think, you know, since the Greg Moore tragedy, since Mm. the Dan Weldon loss, since the Dale Earnhardt loss, I mean, NASCAR got it right. If you can get something like this, as tragic as it is when someone expires in a crash, NASCAR had the sad news that we had lost Dale Earnhardt at the Daytona 500 way back when, um, within minutes of it happening. And I think IndyCar needs to find a way to expedite the main point a lot quicker than they did,
0: what does this do for the sport um, you know other mm. than remind us that this is not like any other sport, it is extremely dangerous
3: it's inherently dangerous and the, the one the one part that comes out of this and we had a discussion here on Raceland on Sigama with, with Scott Goodyear in particular, is the fact that the mainstream media goes to the website, looks up this crash, sees the video and starts talking about it's a blood sport it's a bloodthirsty sport and really starts to spew on the side of ignorance not understanding the safety aspects of this and the only way to stop any chance of anyone getting hurt is to shut the cars off they're not going to do that the players in this understand the risk of what could happen but rarely does i mean we have crashes where no one is hurt more often than not over 95 percent of the time good point you you know what what we don't tell you are the thousands and thousands of laps that go down every race weekend where nothing happens in a sport that is already inherently dangerous which could kill you if something goes wrong but it rarely does you've seen more guys walk away from serious crashes than you have had injured in crashes or heaven forbid not survive a crash so you get you get some of these the mainstream media cockroaches crawling up from under rocks telling us we've got to shut our sport down because it's too dangerous. We know it's dangerous. The drivers know it's dangerous. The fans know it's dangerous. The sanctioning bodies know it's dangerous. The promoters know it's dangerous. And the fans, I mean, I have already said it, the fans know it's dangerous. It's what, the, it's what the game is. But we, these days, with the safety advancements we've had, and this is what we do, we learn from crashes like Roberts from Wickens, to do something. Maybe come up with a different thing. Maybe make the safer barriers taller. Come up with a different style of fencing to try and retain cars. This is, you know, after after Earnhardt, we lost Earnhardt. Everybody now wears a Hans device, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's what we learn. Sometimes we can be proactive with it. Most time, it's reactive, but the sport is infinitely safer now than it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and they will continue to develop it. it to develop that, it is very, very tough to make an inherently dangerous sport completely safe. As a Ye- matter of fact, it's darn right impossible, but you can improve the percentage of, uh, of drivers who will survive serious crashes wickens survived this crash he was badly hurt in it but he's still here, and he eventually he'll tell us all about it.
0: I was talking to uh, Ron Fellows, co-owner of Canadian Tire Motorsports sure. Park, uh, sure. Mossport, when we were up there for the NASCAR truck race. Yep. And we were talking about this because they had a, a, a neat little, uh, neat huge card thing yeah, like that they everybody was the signing word. for them. Yeah, uh, a uh, signing for them. there. Yeah, yeah, which was absolutely fabulous. It so, was excellent. Yeah. We're standing there in the uh, you know in the uh, media center thing there, and I'm look we're looking at this large picture that an old picture that they had uh you know reprinted and posted up oh, and it's like of 1969 at mossport yeah. the front the front grand i know the one you mean the front grandstand the old grandstands were there the yeah. old uh suites above the pit boxes and stuff yep. and i never even noticed this and i you know we're, I'm, we're standing in front of this picture and we're looking at it and we're, you know i saying yep. what is this what year is, this? is that can-am cars blah 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 and the first thing ron pointed out was look at the guardrail oh i know and it's a guardrail. That's exactly it's not a wall or a fence. No, it's a rail. No, there was, and, and, and you, you don't even see this on the highway exactly anymore. Right. You know, exactly right. Just like a, a six or eight inch guardrail that ran all the way down the front of the, uh, all the way down would, the main straightaway. Would try to open a car like a can opener. Exactly. And yeah. I mean, that's what was separating the cars from the grandstand. Yep. That was separating the cars from the, uh, from the pit area. And now, of course, that's a, a concrete wall and stuff. But yep. you know, that was the first comment was how safe this has become. That being said, there's always the chance.
3: Always the chance. Always the chance. But less than 1% of the time, and and people can debate my my percentages and figures all you like, less than 1% of crashes in an auto race, and not just at Indianapolis or at Pocono at Le Mans or at Mosport, or at any entire motorsport park, but at at Merrittville and at Flamborough and at Ransomville and Varney and any of these other tracks, less than 1% of the crashes that happen, result in any kind of sustained injury to the driver. And an even lower percentage of that is the drivers who don't survive those crashes. And it's because of the strength of the cars, the strength of the roll bars, the helmets now, the Hans device, yeah. you know, the fireproof suits, the the walls they put in there. I mean Indianapolis and, and a lot of people are critical of Tony George, including me. But, I mean, he was the first guy that put in that safer barrier system, S-A-F-E-R, steel and foam energy reduction is what it stands for, to cushion that wall to prevent the rapid deceleration to get into the driver. You know, and the IndyCar itself made a lot stronger, a lot stronger with carbon fiber. The parts are supposed to break off and fly around. People, you know, laymen, people who don't know, the ignorance out there, see parts flying and they lose their minds. Yeah. Those cars are designed to do exactly what they did, was yeah. to fly apart like that so the deceleration energy is not transferred into the driver. However, a collision is a collision at better than 200 miles an hour, and the driver got hurt. But, but I tell you what, if, if those parts were rigid yeah. and the side pods didn't stay on that car, Robert wouldn't be here to even think about. Yeah. You know, and those are advancements, all the advancements that NASCAR made, they moved the driver more to the middle of the car, yeah. put more crushable areas on their stock cars, a lot of tracks installing safer barrier all the way around. Now you're going to see probably them come up with a different fence cabling retention system at places like Pocono, you're going to see tracks like Pocono put in taller safer barriers hmm. to try and you know to to increase The percentage of survival in crashes, because once these cars leave the ground, you're talking about almost like a small airplane with no wings crashing, and you're going to get hurt in something like that, and 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 that's almost unavoidable. What you don't want is a driver, if we're crying out loud. To expire in those crashes. Right.
0: Uh, talk about the health of auto racing, specifically uh, with NASCAR. Reason I'm bringing mm-hmm. this up, uh, we, we just heard uh, Martin Truex Jr.'s uh, team. You know, he's the guy's a champion from they're last year. After the year after and the they're shutting events. it down because they can't get a sponsorship. If you can't get a sponsor for the championship mm-hmm. team, what does yep. that say about the sport? You
3: know, uh, it, 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 it makes you question the overall health of the sport. Couple of that with the fact that we keep hearing rumors that the France family may want to sell NASCAR.
0: Yeah, I, I think what's happening is And he's having his own issues as well. Well, so, and then, yeah.
3: yeah, exactly. You know, and uh, and the you know France with the with with those yeah with the issues that uh, you know getting arrested and things like that. For with Brian France, so that that's not a good situation. You know, I I think and, and I don't often agree with what he says, but I think Michael Andretti and uh, Michael Andretti, Michael Waltrip, and a few other drivers are, are are hitting the nail on the head. And I think you and I have even talked about this. Yeah. It's gotten so expensive because people have lost identity with it. I think, I think the, the race is being way too long. That race at Darlington was four hours long. Yeah. You can do the Super Bowl, the biggest sporting event in the <sighs> world, in much less time. There was no excuse for NASCAR to make us sit through four hours to get their races done. But
0: then again, this is a sport that hasn't transformed out of the 60s. In well, the old that, for, days...
3: For the most part, and that has worked in their favor, yeah. but now they're going to be forced kicking and screaming into the modern era. Shorten their races, they, I think, and Michael's point was, and Walter's point was this... You need to put the stock
0: yeah. back in stock cars. Is that all because of safety though? I mean, can well, you, as can as you as make as can you take a, can you go buy a car off yeah. a lot, put it in one of these shops for a month or two, yep. and then uh, whatever roll rolls the roll out, cage in it Whatever rolls out the other yeah. end is as safe as what they're in now.
3: You'd have to have some parameters on what you need to do inside the car and how, and how it's adapted. What you've lost is the identity that a Chevy is different from a Ford, is different yeah. from a Toyota. Well, they
0: used to start with a real car. Well, of course. And then the lock, and and tear, it, right? and then tear it down and up. build it up. Now they're just building a yeah. car, a yeah. replica that looks Let's like Let's
3: remember, it. too, they were going half the speed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Now they're going over Now they're still. Now they're getting close to 200 miles an hour again. And so, you want to see guys get hurt.
0: No, you don't. In the, the old days, that, the guys were getting hurt all the time. Well, getting hurt, but how many drivers did, got killed?
3: Yeah, you, saw, you, know, you see these old films of Richard Petty and David yeah. Pearson, and Cale le- you know, A.J. Foyt leaving the track, yeah. barrel rolling down the straightaway, yeah. and what do they have? A case of race and rheumatism the next day and a scraped elbow. <laughs> now, the, you know, now the cars are doing close to 200 miles an hour again, which is why we put plates on them at Daytona and Talladega you know, and, and increase the height of the fence so the stuff wouldn't get into the crowd. You're going really, really fast, and when you've got spec cars that are all the same shape, no matter what make they say they are, yeah. you're going to have this problem. You need to scale it back. Right It's so flippin' expensive yeah. to put these cars on the racetrack. You've only got you know, Hendrick and Penske and, and maybe Ganassi as the top teams, and the rest of them are all struggling. Yeah. You know, the defending champions team folds up. Yeah. Truex Jr. and Cole Pern is Canadian crew chief, are probably going to wind up with Joe Gibbs.
0: Yeah, team, that's a rumor. With the,
3: with the affiliation, the team they were affiliated with, they're going to be in there, you know, full-time. But it's, it's priced itself out of the market. You've got viewers. The viewership is coming down, and the track attendance, because they're still too expensive ticket-wise, and the races and the, the contests are too flippin' long. And and being tradition, I mean, how, it wasn't only ten minutes ago, comparatively, that we stopped using carburetors on these cars, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Fuel injection has yeah. been around for how long? Trailing that? arms, you <laughs> know. So it served them well to be traditionalists, yeah. but they're going to have to be pulled, kicking and screaming, into the modern era for people to get interested again, and for corporate North America to get interested again. And that, you know, goes right back to your question about how can the championship team not have enough sponsorship to keep going? So,
0: you know, and and again. Um, the races being long, this was an endurance game as well, whereas now it's not an endurance game anymore. Because it's the all, only game in town. Because all, all of these cars are built to last that long at these speeds. So yeah. it's rarely, it's rare that you have a failure at this point. Well, until uh, the whereas, saw an engine let go. Yeah, whereas the old days it used to happen all the time. That's my bone to pick about the all-star race. It's like they start the all-star race with all these cars and they keep narrowing it down. Yeah. Who wants to see 10 cars on a mile and a half track? You know, like, what the heck's that? It's, it's the bracket mentality, right? Exactly
3: the playoff and you got, oh, now you got fourteen, teams, then you got two teams. Exactly. No
0: and but, the same thing yep. with the tracks. Yep. Uh, and, and many guys said this during the Earnhardt era when they started expanding like gangbusters. It's right. like all these tracks are mile and a half. And right. I know they're all different if you're standing or driving on them, but the average fan doesn't get to do that. No, And you know, I, I've just come back from another incredible race at Mossport where every single year it's decided on the last lap. And I'm saying to the, you know, I was saying to Ron, NASCAR needs you guys more than you need NASCAR, and yep. I, know, I know that's not true. Why do you think NASCAR? But they bought... got to They got to get out of the mile and a half stuff. They got to get into more road courses. Okay. They got to get yeah. into smaller tracks. I mean, it's why do you all... think Na- Why do you think NASCAR bought ARCA? There you what, go. What's ARCA? Yeah, yeah.
3: Small bullring tracks. Why you know did they popular, buy ARCA? You know how popular the truck races on the clay at Roger. Slack's place at Eldora. Yeah, Eldora, yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, I
0: think the truck race, I think the truck series is way more entertaining than the cup series. Sure it is. Sure it is. You know why?
3: A little more rough and tumble. Yeah.
0: But it's on shorter venues. Now, they still do a lot of the
3: big ones. Yeah. But these guys aren't afraid to muscle it.
1: Yeah. And
3: the races are are shorter. And the trucks are a lot cheaper to put together than the cup cars are. Mm-hmm. So you know what they need to do, look inside what they got. Yeah. Even the Xfinity series, you know that that's got some merit to it. But,
0: but I mean, it's amazing yeah. they don't look at what's happening. They're very up, stubborn people. It's amazing they don't look at the success they're having up here and saying and thinking to themselves, mm-hmm. you know what? Every and you watch the commentators after the race up at Mossport, oh, yeah. They always say what a great race this is, and every single year it's a great finish. But yet they seem yeah. to ignore that and go on to the mile and a half. Yeah,
3: up here, up here in Canada.
0: <laughs> However, yeah,
3: I mean, you know, when you when you look at the heritage of NASCAR and when, when Big Bill France formed it, it was supposed to bring all the little pockets of stock car racing under one umbrella, one rule book. And when you showed up, you got some money, and that's why the races were so long. Yeah. And that's why they started 43, 44 cars, and it didn't matter whether you finished first or last. You got, at least you got enough money, gas money to tow home and get back and and that served them well while IndyCar was shooting itself in the foot, they supplanted them as the most popular form of sport and they're, they're, they're hanging on tradition to traditions serve them well. I, I know I'm sounding repetitive, but now they are going to have to listen and change their show. The Darlington thing, primetime television, milking that thing for all of primetime television, right?
1: Yeah.
3: 6.30 and the race doesn't end until somewhere between 10.30 and 11 o'clock at night <laughs> for primetime TV. Give me a stinking break. Who is, who is going to watch that? Where are you going? What's the hurry? Where do you have to be? Well, it's somewhere else than watching cars go around for three and four hours, and, I'm in, and I work in the sport. You can't do that anymore, and that's the reason why their TV numbers suck, and their attendance at racetrack sucks, too.
0: Eric Thomas has been with us, Raceline Radio Network. You can hear him every Sunday night right here on CHML. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're a good buddy. We'll talk next time. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900-CHML.